Voice is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. It's the last week of December, 2022. The days are already starting to get longer. Woohoo! A great time to start thinking about next year's garden. And with next year around the corner, a good time to look back at some of our favorite interviews of the past year. Today, we talk with garden columnist Jeff Lowenfels about his book, Teeming with Bacteria. It's the fourth in his groundbreaking, pun intended, series about building the soil microbiome to create a flourishing soil food web. Then we hear excerpts from our 2022 interviews with Bill McKibben, Mohsin Hamid, and Kerry Blakinger. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour and this year on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. And hey, do you know you can go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. If we don't do anything about it, we have about 60 years left of soil. And without soil, we don't have food, at least not enough to feed the world. The remedy? Regenerative agriculture that builds the soil by using nature's own methods. My guest Jeff Lowenfels has been writing about gardening for over 45 years. He writes the column Alaska Gardening and Growing for the Anchorage Daily News. But perhaps his greatest contribution to gardening is his series on the soil food web, or soil microbiome. He began in 2010 with Teeming with Microbes, that's T-E-A-M, followed by Teeming with Nutrients, Teeming with Fungi, and now Teeming with Bacteria. We caught up with him to talk about that latest book. Jeff Lowenfels, welcome to Writer's Voice. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, this book, Teeming with Bacteria, is part of a series that you're doing. In fact, it's the fourth in a series. You did Teeming with Nutrients, Teeming with Fungi, Teeming with Microbes, and now this one, Teeming with Bacteria. And well, first of all, just tell us, you're not a soil scientist. How did you get well, into this? Uh, I've always uh, been a gardener, and uh, I've been writing a garden column. I'm, I'm America's longest-running garden columnist, as I think about it. I've been writing a garden column in the Anchors Daily News for 46 years. And uh, it's just one of those things. When you write garden columns, people come to you with ideas and, and, and facts they want you to check out. And a friend of mine came to me with some soil. He told me that the soil had the highest microbiology of any soils on the face of the planet Earth, and I didn't know what he was talking about. So I had to figure it out, and that resulted in a book called Teeming with Microbes. And by the way, the, the teeming is T-E-A-M, because you're teeming up with the microbes as a gardener. And uh, that book describes something known as the soil food web which it was something that a woman named Dr. Elaine Ingham had promoted, but people really were not familiar with it. And today, I would venture to guess 
you will not find a garden writer that's not familiar with the soil food web and that doesn't base their writings on the soil food web. So so maybe I, I, I should probably describe that. Here's how it works. The plant takes about 30 to 40% of its photosynthetic energy and uses it to produce substances called exudates, which they drip out of their root system. These are designed specifically because they have carbons and, and other things in it to attract bacteria and fungi that need that carbon. These bacteria and fungi can't produce their own. They don't photosynthesize. So the plant produces the carbon, puts it out right in the root system, and along come these bacteria and fungi who eat these exudates. They, in turn, attract protozoa, which everybody studied in high school, but nobody remembers, paramecians, amoebas, those kinds of things, and nematodes, which are microscopic worms, and the nematodes and the protozoa eat the bacteria and the fungi because they also need carbon, and the bacteria and fungi contain that carbon. Well, not all of it's needed, and so a lot of the excess is pooped out, if that's the proper term, right there in the root zone, and happens to have a charge on it and is in plant-usable form, nutrients that the plant can use. And that's how plants feed themselves or we thought that's how plants fed themselves, until 2010, when a uh, team in Australia discovered this new term, rhizophagy, uh, root eating. Uh, and what these people discovered was that a lot of those bacteria that are attracted by the exudates to the root system actually enter into the root. And when they're in the root cells, they produce nitrogen, they fix nitrogen and feed the plant, which is simply amazing. But even more amazing, they multiply every 20 seconds, I mean, every 20 minutes, and you get so many of them after two or three days that they push themselves out of the root cell, forming a root hair in the process and they are then expelled out into the soil where they regenerate their nutrients and go back in the system and repeat it again. A plant can get up to 30 to 40% of its nitrogen from these internal nitrogen-fixing bacteria. This is a brand new addition to the soil food web. So now the picture is some of the bacteria are eaten, pooped out, and feed the plant. And some of the bacteria are actually moving into the root cell and creating nutrients in the root cell for the plant. It's really an amazing discovery. And something you say in this book is that plants actually choose the bacteria that are going to be around. And how does this happen? Well, they design the exudates to 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 attract what they need them to attract. It's you know we think plants are these dumb stationary items that just sit in the ground, but they are very, very intelligent. Uh, again, probably not the right word, but but they can't move. And so they have to figure out how to attract their own food and how to protect themselves. And, and a lot of these bacteria and fungi are there to protect the plant. They produce uh, metabolites that, that drip out uh, into the soil that kill the bad guys. They, they work with each other in symbiotic fashion. Uh, and so you've got a really interesting rhizophere plant interaction system. It's really 
really quite something. Yes, and we'll go into that uh, a little bit more deeply. But before we go further into this book, Teeming with Bacteria, tell us a little bit about one of the other books, at least, and, and that's the one... Teeming with fungi. This is also part of the microbiome, the the mycelium. Right. It's very, it's a very important part of the microbiome uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the symbiotic relationship which plants set up with these uh, with certain uh, fungi called mycorrhizal fungi also feed the plant. The, they attract the the right mycorrhizal fungi enters into the root again. And in return for those exudates, goes out and brings nitrogen and a lot of metals and phosphorus uh, to the plant and feeds the plant uh, through this symbiotic relationship. So the plant is definitely getting its food from bacteria. People may remember uh, uh, using uh, nitrogen-fixing bacteria when you plant legumes, peas, and those kinds of things. But what people don't also recognize is that these bacteria and fungi are the beginning of the formation of soil structure. The bacteria have a slime, which causes the individual particles to stick together. And then the bacteria, I mean, the fungi come in and weave those little particles into bigger aggregates. And we're not talking about bricks. We're talking about things that have irregular surfaces so that you get air air spaces, pore spaces where the little guys can hide from the bigger guys, where air can be uh, sequestered, where water can be held. Uh, So this is where soil structure comes from, these bacteria and these fungi. So they're really, really important. And then even more important, or maybe not more important, that's not the proper term, the fungi, there's a particular kind that's in the soil, attracted by plants that produce a substance called glomalin. Glomalin is a very, very carbon-rich substance. And what happens is these fungi literally suck carbon out of the air and bring it into the soil. So it's soil structure, and it's the sequestering of, of, of carbon that they complete. And most gardeners absolutely knew nothing about this because we were taught to garden the way our grandparents were taught to garden. We had, you know, the mythology of, of, of relatives, oh, do this, do that. Uh, but in fact, there's a very interesting interplay going on between plants and the microbiome uh, that surrounds them. So carbon sequestration, this is one way that you've described how bacteria and the mycelial fungi uh, help to sequester carbon. Crops grown in a way that builds soil, in other words, regenerative agriculture, because it's about building soil, are also much more resilient in the face of climate impacts and resilient to, you know, the kinds of pests that come with the stresses of climate change. How does that work? Well, let's start with the bacteria that move into the root system. Those are called endophytic bacteria. They live part of their life inside the plant. And they don't harm the plant. What happens when these particular bacteria move into the root system, the plant lets them in. In fact, the plant attracts them. They move into the root system and they enter into a space called a periplasmic space. The easiest way I can describe this is, is think of a tofu package. The white package on the outside is the cell wall. There's that liquid on the inside, that's the periplasmic space, and then you get the tofu itself. That's the cytoplasm with all the organelles in it. 
the bacteria move through that white cell wall into that liquid, the periplasmic space. And there, the plant sprays them with a superoxide and removes the cell wall from the bacteria. Now, when it does that, it has to protect itself so that it's not destroying its own cell wall. And so it has to increase its resistance to uh, the invasion of these bacteria. Well, there are other bacteria. So the plant gets stronger just, just by the fact that the bacteria have entered them. There are other bacteria that enter different places through the stomata in the leaves, through cracks that appear where branches occur in the root system. And these bacteria are endophytic bacteria that move through the phylum and the xylem. Yeah, they move around the plant and they live inside the plant. But again, it causes the plant, in order to be able to live with them, to increase their resistance. So first of all, the plant increases its resistance. Then some of these bacteria produce, well, all of these bacteria produce phytohormones, hormones that make the plant better. And so uh, they can do uh, all sorts of things that help the plant grow. And one of the things that happens is that they also protect the plant from bad bacteria that try to get in. Now, some of these bacteria actually increase the ability of the plant to handle climate change. They're able to change where the freezing level is inside the plant, for example. Uh, so sometimes you may go outside and you'll see a, an area where the, there's snow on the ground, and then there's an area where there's no snow, or a plant that's covered with snow, and then one plant that's not covered with snow. It has to do with the bacteria. And so it all fits together. This is the science behind regenerative agriculture, making new soil and making the plant a better plant. So you write how they're also able to break down chemicals in soils, including pesticides, right. and we'll talk about pesticides in a minute, into non-toxic constituents. Is it the bacteria that are breaking them down or the plant that's breaking them down? How does that work? It's the bacteria and the fungi that break it down. That's what they do. Uh, fungi in particular are, are great at decaying big things, a leaf. Uh, once they get broken down into little smaller particles, the bacteria move in and, and supplement it. So it's, uh, it's almost like making compost. Uh, you get you get the deterioration of these bad molecules that get broken down by the bacteria and the fungi. And it's very, very important. So if we if we come in and use chemicals, we not only imp we impact the, the amount of bacteria, because a lot of the bacteria don't like these pesticides and herbicides. In some instances, they literally chase them away. In some instances, they kill them. In some instances, the bacteria or the fungi love the particular substance being put on the plant and change the population density of the microbe so that the ones that like it thrive and the ones that don't don't thrive and you get you get a, a balance that's unbalanced. What does that do to uh, so the plant? Uh, not good things. And what we've discovered is that when you when you supply even good things to the plant, like nitrogen, you cause the plant to say, why am I producing these exudates and expending all this energy uh, when I can get this stuff for free? And so they shut down. They, break, they don't form the mycorrhizal partnership. They don't attract the bacteria the way they normally should. And as a result, you become the soil food web. And if you're not there, 
the plant doesn't do well. You got to continually feed the plant because the plant has shut down the systems that it normally uses to grow. And the example I point to people are the redwoods. Whoever fertilizes the redwoods? Whoever puts miracle Grow on them? Nobody. Uh, you know, they're 750 feet tall, 500 years old, uh, you know, without any herbicides, pesticides, or fertilizers. It's the soil food web system that keeps them going. These little tiny microbes, both outside and inside the root system, uh, that feed those big, gigantic trees. And the same thing should be happening in your garden. So we don't rototill, for example. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Jeff Lowenfels about his book, Teeming, that's T-E-A-M, Teeming with Bacteria. It's the fourth in a series about the soil food web. So all of this, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. This is a short book, but it's it's got lots of pictures, and it's really an education in plant botany and some of the newest ways of doing it. I, I got I to gotta interrupt you there. I mean, when the first one came out, Teaming with Microbes, which is the one people should start with, by the way, and then move to Teaming with Bacteria, it was reviewed as the most important book written in the past 25 years and maybe ever on horticulture. And the, and the reason is, is because this is the science behind how plants operate. And we've got to understand the science in order to be able to prevent damage to our valuable, valuable resource soil. And we only have 60 years left, they say, of soil. That means 60 seasons of food. Well, I got, I got grandkids that aren't going to be able to eat after the 61st season if we're not careful about what we're doing. So this is incredibly important stuff. If you're a gardener, you must understand the soil food web. So let's talk about that then, how gardeners can use this. And let's start with the seeds. You talk a lot about right. seeds here, the role of seeds. A lot of times seeds come in sterilized packages, which now um, it seems is uh, contraindicated, according to this book. Right. Talk about seeds right. and how we should deal with them, how this understanding of bacteria should inform how we deal with seeds. Right. The bacteria that we're talking about, these rhizophagy bacteria and the endophytic bacteria, are, are trapped in the seed as the flower forms. So they're inside the plant, the flower forms, and these bacteria get trapped inside these seeds. When you plant the seeds, these bacteria jump out of the seed into the soil, some of them into the plant. And they're designed specifically to help that particular plant grow. So uh, different plants have different bacteria populations. And if you sterilize the seed, then you're doing some serious damage to what you need to have grow. What the scientists have discovered is that if you remove these bacteria from the, from the root system, you don't get root hairs. These root hairs that we think are nutrient bringing in the nutrients, they do, but they're formed by these bacteria in order to eject the multiplied bacteria back out into the soil so they can regrow their cell walls and go back into the plant again and repeat the process. And if you sterilize the soil or sterilize the seeds, you're going to reduce the amount of bacteria that's available to the plant. And in, in some instances, the very bacteria that the plant actually needs to be that kind of plant. 
You know, there's a lot of hydroponic gardening. Right. No soil at all. What does that do to the to the plants and the food? Well, obviously, uh, hydroponic uh, works. Uh, what you get is you are chemically putting the, the the nutrients into the media as opposed to having the plant micro, uh, microbiome produce the, the, the nutrients that go into the plant. So, you know, it's an artificial system. It definitely works. You don't have the same mycorrhizal fungi set up, uh, but you don't need it because you're, you're force feeding the plant. I don't particularly like it because I'm not sure that the nutrients in hydroponics is as good as the nutrients in a natural system. Well, exactly. That that would be my question. It's kind of like all the other elements, the, the micronutrients that we may not know about that right. will not be available. So back to gardeners, regular gardeners, of which yeah. I am one. Could you just yeah. use compost? Yes. Composting is excellent. Uh, although <laughs> it's a funny, funny thing. We've discovered that that the, there are differences in the bacterial mix in vermicompost made by worms and thermal compost made by heating in a big pile. And uh, we're just now beginning to do the research as to which plants like what better. Uh, and so a home gardener should be experimenting, grow a couple of tomatoes using vermicompost and a couple of tomatoes using uh, thermal compost and see which ones do better. And realize that the heirloomness of your tomatoes is as a result of the specific kinds of bacteria that that particular kind of heirloom tomato carries. We know that we're, we have more bacterial cells in our bodies than, than human cells. And the same thing probably is true with plants. They have more bacteria in them than, than regular cells. And they impact how the plant grows, how the plant tastes, what the plant does. And, and one of the problems is we don't study bacteria in school because they're too small. We start our kids out learning about dinosaurs, which is completely useless other than the fossil fuel we say. Uh, you know, I mean, bacteria are everywhere and they do everything, but they're so small that we don't study them. We need to know about these microbes much more than we need to know about dinosaurs. Now, back for gardeners, you know, this year I, following the gardening advice that I found in my books, I dumped out all my soil, I actually dumped it out into the compost heap, and I have been assiduously rotating my crops every year, not growing the same crop in the same place. You say, nah, these are not good practices. I mean, if it's a, if it's a potato, that's one thing because the potato requires a special pH, and if you don't don't grow in the right spot, you know you may end up with potato skin. But most plants, you should continue to grow right where you were growing. Uh, let's take a container-grown tomato plant. That container soil has all of the exudates that the tomato has been producing. It has attracted bacteria that the tomato needs. Uh, so you should be using that soil to get a jump start uh, on your production. Um, what I do is I, uh, at the end of the season, I cut my tomatoes at the ground level in the, in the container, or I would do the same thing in soil. Uh, and then I just plant right in there uh, without removing the old roots or anything. It's got all sorts of organic material. It's got all the exudates. The, it's got a lot of the nutrients. And the, and the new plant roots will grow in the old plant root system. Uh, through the same tunnels, uh, et cetera. 
And so it's a really, it's a really a good thing to do as opposed to a bad thing to do. You got to keep an eye on it. You got to make sure you don't have root problems. I mean, you know, you got to pay attention like, like a, a gardener, but generally, uh, you know, things take care of themselves. We should let the plant be in control. And we, as gardeners, tend to mess things up. When you rototill, you, you cut worms in half. That doesn't give you two worms. When you rototill, you put the bacteria that's supposed to be down in the root zone up on the surface or way down below the surface. You break up that fungal network. So these are bad things to do. And we've been taught all these years, you need to rototill, you need to, you know, you need to double dig. No, that's not right. So how do you then make sure that the nutrients that the plant has used and you've harvested, I mean, you do have to add nutrition. How, what's the best way to do that? Okay. Well, and the reason you have to add nutrition is because we as gardeners break what's known as the law of return. What falls down from a plant is generally there so that it decays and puts back into the soil the things the plant took out of the soil. That makes sense. Well, we come along and we take the lettuce leaf, we take the apples, we pull off the various things that we want to eat, and uh, then we come in and clean up the garden, which is really ridiculous. We really need to be putting stuff back into the garden to make up for breaking the law of return. Organic people use mulches to do this, by and large. You put the mulches down in the fall. They break down during the winter months, even if you have snow and ice. And then by spring, you have replenished uh, the nutrients in the soil. Now, you grow cannabis, is that right? Yep. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, this is obviously cannabis is a plant, it's going to be the same thing. But how do you apply this knowledge to cannabis? Are there some special techniques that you use for growing cannabis that, you know, people may not be aware of? Right. Well, first of all, you should know I have a, a, a fifth book on something known as auto-flowering cannabis, which is a, a new kind of cannabis that goes from seed to flower in uh, around 90 days, as opposed to six months. Uh, and it's now the cannabis that many of the dispensaries around the country are using uh, for sales because it's it's just so much easier to grow. So when you grow cannabis, no longer should people be sterilizing their seeds. No longer should they be using sterile soil. No longer should they be adding nutrients to the leaves. They should let the system work the way it's supposed to work. And And what people have discovered is that the cannabis seed bacteria determines the strain of the bacteria. So one kind of cannabis versus another kind of cannabis results mostly because of the difference in the bacterial mix that that particular kind of cannabis has versus the other one, which is really an amazing thing. There are these things called land race uh, cannabis strains. These are the originals that have been around forever that are used for breeding. And they contain particular kinds of bacteria that the other ones don't contain. It's just it's just an, an, a neat system. So when you grow your seeds, whether it's cannabis or any kind, you don't sterilize them. If you germinate them in a paper towel, which many people do, they get them to sprout in a wet paper towel, you need to plant that paper towel along with the little seedling because that paper towel's got a lot of the bacteria that jumped off that seed when it germinated. So it's really no different than growing any other plant. It's just that maybe it's a lot more fun in the end. 
<laughs> right. So we talked about compost, but you also right. say in the book that you can actually buy some of these beneficial strains. How do you know you're buying the right strain or what kinds of rules should you follow? What are some basic ones you want to look for? Uh, It turns out that farmers for the past 10 years or so have been using a lot of these endophytic or some of these endophytic bacteria that they've discovered. And all of the so-called evil, you know, chemical companies that are making fertilizer and, you know, destroying our system, et cetera, et cetera, are all now looking at these endophytic bacteria as a way to replace what they're making chemically, uh, because this is the future. Uh, we're going to have wheat where you can fix the nitrogen inside the wheat as opposed to having to apply it outside in the soil. So we now can buy some of these um, uh, mycorrhizal fungi. 15 years ago, we could not. And by the way, I tell people, if you go to a nursery and they don't sell mycorrhizal fungi, it's not a good nursery. Go to another one. But now uh, there are two or three different kinds of bacillus bacteria that you can purchase uh, that you can experiment with to see whether they work with your particular plant. Unlike the mycorrhizal fungi, of which we can produce about uh, maybe eight to 10 of the 350 that we know of, uh, those eight to 10 sleep around with lots of different kinds of plants. Not so with the bacteria. They tend to be much more specific to an individual kind of plant. So you can buy some of these uh, bacillus in some some nurseries. They're just beginning to come in and try it out on various plants. They work on some plants and they don't work on other plants. And we need to start recording that and, and publishing that information so that people understand. Eventually, in the next 10, 10 year, five or 10 years, I, I'm convinced because this is such an integral part of the soil food web, this rhizophagy, uh, we're going to end up with uh, you know a whole sh- shelf full of stuff that we're going to be able to use on our plants. Uh, it's coming just like it did with uh, the uh, uh, mycorrhizal fungi, just like it did with rhizobia, which is the nitrogen fixing that we use on legumes. We'll be able to buy these, these other things. Or we'll be able to buy plants uh, already grown with the bacteria in the system. Well, when we do have those available, we'll be able to refer to this wonderful book, Teeming with Bacteria, the fourth in a series, so that we'll be able to buy the right one. Jeff Lowenfels, it's just been fascinating to talk with you about this really important subject. I mean, this is really about our survival on this planet. Thank you so much. My pleasure, and thank you for what you do. Jeff Lowenfels is a former president of the Garden Writers Association. He was inducted into the organization's Hall of Fame in 2005. Find a link to his columns and a New York Times article about him at writersvoice.net. Next up, we take a look back at some of our favorite interviews of 2022. Stay tuned after the break. And of course, it is that time of year to look back at 2022 before we leave to head into the new year. I have to say this was one of our best years for interviews. We spoke with Nobel laureate for literature, Abdulraza Gurna, no Violet Bulawayo, whose novel Glory was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and presidential candidate Marion Williamson, among many other terrific guests. So, 
It was tough to choose among them. Today, we'll hear excerpts from three of our favorite interviews, and you can go to writersvoice.net for the full list, as well as links to listen to them at your leisure. First up, let's listen to an excerpt from my conversation with world-renowned climate protector Bill McKibben about his wonderful memoir, The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. Bill McKibben is best known for his work as a global leader in the fight for a livable climate. But he's also a longtime environmental journalist and the author of 18 books. His latest is perhaps my favorite. It's a look at what's happened to America since McKibben was a boy growing up in a suburb of Boston in the 1970s. The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon looks through the lens of personal memoir, history, and astute observation of the predicaments we find ourselves in and how they happened. Extreme inequality, erosion of democracy, and climate breakdown. Bill McKibben is the co-founder of the climate protection group 350.org and Third Act, which centers its work on mobilizing seniors to protect the climate and democracy. Bill McKibben, welcome to Writer's Voice. Well, what a pleasure to get to join you, Francesca. This book, on the surface, it's a memoir, but it's really much more than that. You take your own suburban childhood in Lexington, Massachusetts, a so-called bedroom suburb of Boston, as a touchstone to examine the key influences that have corroded American society over the last 40-some years. First, give us the setting. Lexington, Massachusetts, 1970. Right. Lexington, Massachusetts. So Lexington is an interesting place because of its history, an otherwise unremarkable suburb. And in 1970, when I was 10, two things happened that were important, one of which I knew about the time. And I'll describe them briefly because I think they kind of make the larger case that the book's trying to make. The first and most dramatic was a protest against the war in Vietnam. Uh, the, the Vietnam veterans against the war, led then by a lanky young John Kerry, just returned as a lieutenant from Vietnam and leading the anti-war fight, uh, they wanted to camp on Lexington Green. The town fathers refused to let them do it. Uh, and so townspeople came out in protest, including my mild-mannered father uh, in a very anomalous action for him. He got arrested along with several hundred other townspeople in what remains the biggest um, civil disobedience action in Massachusetts history. So for me, at the age of 10, impressionable age, uh, this struck me as uh, that this was the kind of spirit of the age. You know, this was the moment when we were figuring out ways other than war to solve our problems, when women were suddenly being allowed to be a full part of public life, when the civil rights movement was at its apex. Dr. King had visited Lexington a couple of years before his assassination, uh, when the first Earth Day that same year, 1970, was bringing tens of millions of Americans into the streets. Things were divided, but things were headed in the right direction. Well, it turns out, and I didn't really know this until I started doing some research on that Battle Green event, that six weeks apart from it, 
the town of Lexington, something else happened political. Uh, Lexington was a white and affluent place, though nowhere near as affluent as it subsequently become. Um, and there was some demand as part of the civil rights movement for a more integrated uh, town. Now, Lexington wasn't desegregated by covenant or law, but by economics. And so uh, a number of people got together and asked for an affordable housing development, a modest one, a hundred units in town. And uh, the town fathers this time were all on the right side and said, this is a good idea. And all the churches endorsed it and things. But then it went to a referendum in town and voting in secret, uh, Lexingtonians by a margin of two to one turned down this plan for any kind of even modest affordable housing. And and that was that. And when I read that, I was thinking about it, it came to me to symbolize the other part of the American spirit at that moment, the, the kind of selfish part, perhaps becoming more selfish as property values started to rise in those suburbs. And I think the decade of the 70s really was when that tension played out. And by the end of it, in the fateful election of 1980, we made our choice and picked the, the side that said individuals are what matter. Markets solve problems. Governments, the problem, not the solution. We ended the work that had begun during the Depression and continued during the war and afterwards the work of however fitfully trying to build a better society, what LBJ called a great society, what Dr. King called the beloved community. We ended that work and and took up the work that's mostly preoccupied us since, which is just uh, looking out for our own selves. To me, this was the most important takeaway that I had from the book you go through a lot of the history of, you know, the development of the suburbs and how racism underpins our inequality. These are all things that are well worth talking about, uh, important to talk about. But this was a new idea for me, and it really crystallized something that I'd felt, I felt for decades, really. You know, this hyper-individualism and how it replaced a sense of community. So, Talk a little bit more about that. How did you arrive at this idea? Well, think about what the suburb is, just in structural terms, and you begin to get a sense, I think, of how the politics played out. The American project since the end of World War II, the thing that we devoted most of our treasure to, and no country ever had more treasure, uh, was the project of building bigger houses farther apart from each other. And that came at an obvious environmental cost that we can talk about. You know, you had to heat and cool these things and move in between them and fill them with stuff. But it also came at a um, personal cost. You just ended up in the course of a day running into fewer people, almost literally. Uh, the average American has about half as many close friends today as the average American in the 1950s which is a very big change for a socially evolved primate, you know? And so I think that that in many ways prefigures that political shift that took place in the seventies into the eighties, that diminution of the idea of community. 
And what's interesting to me is that you can, among other things, see it happening across many spheres, not just politics and economics, though that was perhaps most obvious, but part of this book's about the kind of history of Christianity in America. And you see this decisive shift over the same time period from a set of denominations uh, uh, in American Protestantism that whatever their flaws were community focused, uh, were focused on this project of building a, a well of that beloved community. So, you know, in 19, 1960s, more than half of Americans belonged to the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, these mainline denominations. That number is now about 15%. And what's largely replaced them is uh, evangelical Christianity that has a much more individualized and you could almost say market-oriented approach to religion, uh, personal salvation, an individual contact between God and, and worshiper. So those are part and parcel of this same uh, sweeping hyper-individualism is a good word for it. You know, it was Reagan's great friend, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who declared once that there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women. And I, I can't think of a more depressing and also more accurate description of what we let happen to our society over these last 40 years. Not to say a more absurd idea. Right. Right. Well, I mean, what's interesting about it is that in the very short term, it sort of works, you know. Reagan comes into office and gets rid of a lot of government and ends a lot of regulations. And you do have this kind of short-term boom in, you know, the price of gas goes down because, of course, it does. You can drill anywhere you want and don't mind the environmental costs. But it doesn't work for very long. Uh, pretty soon you've melted the Arctic, you know, and pretty soon you're having Americans living ever less happy lives. Uh, as you know, uh, uh, life expectancy for Americans over the last five years below before COVID ever came has begun to drop for the first time and pretty significantly. And it's due to largely to what the epidemiologists were calling uh, deaths of despair, people who had become so isolated, so lonely, so addicted, the people who had lost in this world where every man was uh, had to look out for himself. That was Bill McKibben talking about his memoir, The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon. You're listening to Writer's Voice, and we're playing excerpts from some of our favorite interviews of 2022. Next up, Mohsin Hamid. We talk with him about his brilliant and thought-provoking novel, The Last White Man. What would it be like if white people lost their whiteness? Not just the privilege that comes with whiteness, but the skin color itself. How would they deal with a world where, all of a sudden, they woke up brown? That's the device at the heart of Mohsen Hamid's novel, The Last White Man. It's a kind of fable that examines what happens when the social construction of race falls away to reveal our fundamental humanity. Mohsen Hamid is the author of five novels, including Exit West and The Reluctant Fundamentalist. 
Mohsen Hamid, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. This book, The Last White Man, is a kind of fable about the social construction of race. What inspired you to write this book? I think a couple of different things. One is that I'd lived in many different countries. I spent part of my childhood in the U.S. and then went back to Pakistan, then back to the U.S., Britain, Pakistan again. And so I'm a very, I guess, hybridized, mongrelized person. And all over the world today, we see this return to a kind of tribal identity where dominant groups in each country seem to be increasingly attracted to defending the pure, original people, the folk. And that's something which I find very threatening because uh, as a mongrelized, hybridized person who's not purely anything, there's not that much place for me in a world where every country is the pure nation of its pure people. And the other part of my way in was after 9-11, something quite strange happened for me. You know, I had been to these elite universities. I had a well-paying job in New York City, a very cosmopolitan city. And by and large, I had passed without too much difficulty. And then I found myself suddenly being stopped in airports for extra searching. I would be held at immigration for several hours when I arrived in the country. People seemed uncomfortable if I arrived uh, on a bus with a bit of a beard and a backpack. I became an object of suspicion and, and, and possibly of, of threat. And I felt like I wanted things to go back to the way they were. I felt that I'd lost something. And as I, as I thought about this over the years, I began to realize that what I'd lost in a way was a kind of partial whiteness, a kind of uh, sense of belonging, of, of being allowed to pass. And I thought, you know, why do I want this thing back? You know, what did I, what had I been complicit in? You know, was this thing a good thing that I wanted? And those thoughts, I guess, over the years and decades led their way to this novel, The Last White Man. And it's a profound experience of the loss of, of whiteness that happens to the protagonist, a man named Anders. First, I just wanted to ask you about his name. Uh, Anders means other in German. Was that a deliberate illusion? Yeah, well, Anders is an interesting name because it's, it's, it's a root of, of, um, of other or stranger. It's a root of manly uh, or, or man. And it occurs in many European languages. And so I liked it in that it was, you know, this idea of this man, of this strange man. And also because it feels like it comes from a kind of imaginary place that has sort of connotations of whiteness. Like it comes from some primeval white place that Anders and Una, whoever they are, their names seem to come from an interesting space. In much the way in my novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, I tried to use the character's voice. Uh, to create a sort of impression of a particular type of Islam. Um, I wanted to use Anders and Una's names as a way of creating a, an impression of a particular kind of whiteness. We'll get to Una, who is Anders's girlfriend. But he wakes up one morning to find that his skin has turned dark. And you don't use the word black in the book, and there's no reference to anything other than a skin change. Are you leaving the non-white nature of this change deliberately vague? And if so, why? Well, I, um, I guess there's two aspects to that. Uh, the novel explores the idea that, um, that this sort of whiteness is kind of imagined. You know, it's a fictional thing. That race is something that we invent. It's not something that is, in a sense, determined. It's not like a planet uh, or a waterfall. It's not something that just exists. 
is something that we imagine into being. And so it wasn't that I wanted Anders to be moved from whiteness to a different race. I wanted him to experience simply not being white. But also, I wanted him, or the reader really, to be free to imagine this experience for themselves. I think one of the things that novels do, which makes novels quite special and different from films and television, is that in films and television, you see a world that is imagined for you to a large extent. It looks like the world. But a book doesn't look anything like the characters or the places or the feelings or the images or sensations that it, that it represents. Those things are created by readers in their imagination from the words. And so I try to write books that allow readers to imagine their way in, that allow readers to imagine um, what is happening. And so by being intentionally vague on what Anders looks like, the reader is free, in a sense, to create the Anders of their imagination after his change. And for some readers, that character might look like what, uh, what some people might call black. For others, might look like somebody who perhaps looks like me. But, um, but that's really, really an, an option left to the reader and the reader's imagination. Mohsin Hamid talking with us about his novel, The Last White Man. Finally, let's hear an excerpt from my interview with Carrie Blakinger about her memoir, Corrections in Ink. Blakinger was on the dean's list of Cornell University when she got arrested with a Tupperware container full of illegal drugs, including six ounces of heroin. The stash was partly for her own use and partly to sell to feed her heroin habit. The former skating champion and upper-middle-class striver then began a two-year incarceration for felony drug possession, first in the county jail, then in a series of prisons in New York State. Along the way, she got clean, not because of incarceration, but in spite of it. When she got free, Blakinger became a journalist. She went on to write crusading stories about prison conditions in America, first for the Houston Chronicle and now for the Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization covering the U.S. criminal justice system. At the end of 2010, while you were a student at Cornell, you got arrested with six ounces of heroin, which is actually a lot, and a bunch of other drugs. You got locked up in the county jail. Here you were on the dean's list, a Cornell student, never been in jail before. What was that experience like when you first hit the county jail? You know, I think that one of the things people may not expect about being locked up for the first time is how incredibly confusing it is. Um, I think you don't necessarily appreciate how much you don't know about the system until you're in it. You know, I think that pretty much my entire understanding of jail at that point would have been through TV and movies and honestly through a lot of like uh, law and order. But, you know, there, there's a lot of things about the intake process and about those first few days and even just basic sort of legal terms that you don't tend to learn in school. And so I had no understanding of, you know, I knew that I was supposed to get a phone call. That's what you know from like TV and movies. Right. And then that actually didn't happen. I, I don't think I ever got that phone call. Um, but, you know, you come in and they they put me in a um, this dirty, you know, holding cell with glass on two sides and 
a dirty mattress with holes on it on the floor and like a shower stall caked in vomit. And like, you know, there's no explanation as to how long I was going to be there. I was just put in this cell and I was like, am I here forever? Like, how does this work? And then somebody comes in with food and I was still high. So I was very confused anyways. And, um, you know, there's no clock. I didn't know what time it was. And then, you know, they took me through the booking process and I'd never done a delousing shower before. And nobody explains it to you. They're just like, put this on your hair and stand in that shower. And, you know, you're getting strip searched, um, like a very intensive strip search for the first time. And they're asking you all these intake questions. And then, you know, they give you all your stuff and like send you off to a cell block. And, you know, I I walked in and they slammed the, the bars shut behind me and everyone else was out and walking around. And I'm like, well, what did I do? How am I already locked in? Like, what happened here? And nobody tells you, like, this is just the standard. They do medical isolation for the first, you know, three days to two weeks. And these are just like little things that, that nobody explains. And, you know, I didn't know how to get a lawyer or when I'd be in court next or when there's bail or do I qualify for bail? How do I make bail? Who gets me money? How does this happen? Like, how do I get money on commissary? How do I buy coffee like everyone else has? Like, there's so many little things about the system that just nobody tells you. They don't sit you down when you get booked in and explain this is how it's going to work. Like, you can ask the women around you and hope that they're right. And otherwise, like you just it's just you don't know. It's just very confusing. And it's a whole other world, too. You know, there's just different lingo and different norms and things that are completely normal in the free world are considered, you know, rude or offensive behind bars. So you're just sort of dropped into like another planet. And it's um, it's deeply confusing and disorienting. And at the same time, you know you're having your humanity and dignity stripped away. So a lot of the things that you would use to define yourself as a person are no longer available to you behind bars. And, you know, I think that that adds up to being just very confusing on a number of levels. Yeah, so that was a rude introduction to a way of life that you were going to be experiencing for the next two years. A fellow inmate in that county jail told you to start a journal. Why do you think she said that to you? I think she knew that I seemed like the one most likely to be a writer. But yeah, I mean, I'd only been in about two days and there was this older woman, she was in her 60s and the rest of us were mostly in our 20s and in for drugs. And she was in her 60s and in for uh, DUI. And she's very nice, older um, pagan lesbian. And she was the only person that was really interested in sort of watching the news every day and reading the newspaper. And we did crosswords together eventually. But in the beginning, I remember a couple days in, she was like, yeah, you should keep a journal. Um, Someday this could make a good book, or at the very least, it's too wild to not write it all down. So I did. I went and I bought legal notepads from the commissary and started keeping extensive journals the entire time I was there. And that was a pretty risky thing to do. Why? Yeah, when you're locked up, anything that you have in your possession is, you know, subject to possible search and seizure. Like, you don't have any sort of right to privacy. So, you know, you know, when you're taking notes or writing something, it could get destroyed or confiscated at pretty much any time. And, you know, that meant that I every every few pages, I would mail it to someone on the outside. Because I I didn't want the staff to be able to read it and use it against me, you know, and obviously, there's some things you just don't write down. There's some things that are just that you witness that are just too risky to write down at all. 
I guess a, a lot of those things are the sorts of things that didn't make it into the book anyway. But with the things that I did write down, I still had to be cautious. Just talking, talking trash about uh, staff or, you know, gossip about something that other prisoners are doing or, you know, things that are observations about your surroundings that could be considered a security risk. Like all of these things can have consequences. Carrie Blakenshire talking with us about her memoir, Corrections in Ink. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. And a very, very happy, healthy, and peaceful new year to all of you.